0: Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to me to the gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from uh, verses uh, 34 to 40 in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-four 34 to 40. If you have noticed that we have slowed down to a glacial pace as we're working our way through Matthew, you are correct about that. I keep talking about how at the end of the week that we're in, in the text, Jesus will be crucified and rise from the dead. Uh, it's the end of this week in Matthew. It will be months in, uh, at Grace on Sunday mornings, but we'll get there eventually. So uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is a passage that is so familiar to us that I fear that has lost some of its bite Like dentures that you've had for decades, it's harder to make them work their way through the food that you're trying to chew. This is Bible language, language that um, we who, uh, some of you have been around for a long time, you, you know very well, you speak Christianese fluently. You are familiar with words like this. You can use phrases like traveling mercies and quiet time and hedge of protection, and you understand that strange language that we sometimes use. I'm grateful to be a native uh, uh, Christianese uh, speaker. I, I grew up speaking Christianese fluently. One of the consequences, though, of speaking Christianese fluently is that phrases like this, um, they can move through your mind Uh, without actually ever stopping there. And um, maybe it's been a while since you've thought about how audacious this claim that the Lord Jesus is making. This is one of those claims in the Bible that's so high, so exalted, that sometimes we come to it and we say, well, yeah, I know, Jesus, he just talks like that. But, I mean, let's be practical here. How can we possibly do what Jesus is commanding us to do in this passage. All these things contribute sometimes to make this command, which Jesus identifies as the greatest one of all, have little practical value. We read it and we say, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, it's in the pile somewhere. But this is the greatest commandment. We sit up a little straighter when Jesus talks like this. Jesus and this teacher, this expert in the law, are talking about the 613 commandments that Moses gave in the Hebrew Scriptures. Ten of them are the ten, you know, the big ten, ten commandments. And then there were 603 more. And the expert in the law says, which one of these is the greatest? And Jesus says, all the other commandments hang on these two that I'm going to tell you. The context, of course, of Matthew 22 draws even more attention. This is a battle of wits. We've been talking about this. A battle of wits between these religious leaders in Jerusalem and Jesus. They're trying to make him look foolish. They're trying to make him look incompetent. They're trying to make him take a position so that he gets himself into trouble, either with the crowds that are following him or the Roman government that has the power to um, execute him. You can see how this passage, this paragraph, that we just read emphasizes that. Verse 34 says that the Pharisees got together. It's interesting phrase. Actually, it's the, the, the same Greek words that are used in Psalm 2.2, this great psalm in the Hebrew Scriptures that talk about the opposition that human beings have to God. Look at Psalm 2.2. It'll appear on the screen here in just a minute. The kings, there it is, the kings of the earth Rise up and the rulers, here it is, band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Just like in Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth are gathering together to fight against God, to try to oppose God, so here in Matthew 22, the Pharisees are getting together. It's not going to work. They're trying. It's not going to work. Then verse 35 tells us that this expert in the law tested him. We've seen that word before. It's a, it's a tricky question. He, he, he's trying to, to, to trick Jesus, to deceive Jesus, to trip him up. I haven't mentioned this before, but we've been looking at, at Matthew 22 and the questions that are here. There are some New Testament scholars who see parallels between these questions in Matthew chapter 22 and the and Passover traditions. Um, remember this event happens just a few days before the Jewish Passover, and there's a tradition at Jewish Passover about how families celebrate. There's a script that they follow when they eat this very elaborate meal, and a father, the father is the leader of this, and during the Passover meal, the three, there are uh, questions that are asked, a series of four of them. Uh, The first three are asked by sons, the sons. One of the questions is the question about the interpretation of the law of Moses, one of the questions is kind of a scoffing question, and one of the questions is a sincere question that the son asks, and then the last question is the one, a question that the father himself asks. And, and that does fit this pattern pretty well in Matthew chapter 22. There's a question about the law. We've read that. There's a, a scoffing question. We've read that one. There's a, uh, maybe this is the this more sincere question, and then the father, or actually in this passage, Jesus asked the question. Notice that um, this puts Jesus in the father role in this scene. Considering it's a battle here of wits, it kind of makes me ask that question or think of that question Who's your daddy now? Jesus is the father in this passage, and who's your daddy now? You, You ask that question when you school somebody, when you teach them a lesson. When you show them that you're superior, who's your daddy now? Jesus is. Now, more eloquently, you also could maybe think of Isaiah chapter 9. Christmas is coming. We're gonna read, I'm sure, at least once the prophecy from Isaiah 9. For unto us a son is born, a child is given, and, and his name, what, what are we gonna know him as? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That first title Wonderful counselor. The word wonderful is a divine word. It speaks of of God's glory. He is wonderful. And the word counselor, you shouldn't think in in this sense of the way we use the word counselors, someone that you uh, consult with when you're having a particular trouble, how grateful we are for men and women who have gifts in this area. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about. When Isaiah uses the word counselor, it's actually referring to a strategist a master planner, someone that at the council of war understands the enemy and knows the best plan for for attacking or for defending the fort. He's a master military strategist. And Isaiah says that the son who's gonna be born, uh, this one, Jesus, is the wonderful strategist. You can't defeat him in a battle of wits. We believe that Jesus has both the authority and the ability to instruct us in how to live. And here, Jesus highlights and puts together two uh, commandments. I want to think with you about those commandments this morning and uh, think about how Jesus reorients your life. We're going to, I want to make several observations about these commands, and I hope to show you how they both bite and how they uh, bless Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's on your side. He's got a strategy for your life that will help you. Let's talk about these commandments. The first one is uh, without ornamentation. Here they are. Jesus says, love God. (laughs) Love God is the first commandment. The question at hand, of course, that this uh, teacher of the law asks is about the greatest commandment. The Jews of Jesus' day spent a fair amount of time uh, trying to summarize and rank those 613 commandments. Some of them pointed to what appears to be efforts on the part of the prophets to summarize the commandments of Moses. Look at Micah 6.8. Some of them pointed to Micah 6.8. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That seems like a pretty good summary of the commands. Or... Sometimes they point to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. Some of these Jewish rabbis in their arguments, uh, trying to summarize and rank the commands, would point to these uh, apparently summary statements. There's a story that circulated Jesus uh, that happened about 20 years before Jesus spoke these words here in Matthew 22 about a man who approached a well-known rabbi named Rabbi Hillel to ask him a question. He said to, to the rabbi, I will follow you if you can quote the entire law while standing on one foot. And Rabbi Hillel lifted one of his feet and said, what is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is just commentary. That's uh, the silver rule, right, as opposed to the golden rule. This is a live debate. No matter what Jesus says, somebody's going to disagree with him. Someone's going to be able to pick apart his answer. So the teacher of the law asked this question to try to trick him. And Jesus answers by quoting a passage of Scripture that they all would have known from Deuteronomy 6.5. Uh, because faithful Jews would have said this at morning and at night, uh, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let me share with you some observations about this command. Then I want to tell you why you might object to it and why you shouldn't. All right, some observations. Let's start there. Number one, this is comprehensive love he's speaking about, comprehensive love. Do you notice the alls in the passage? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, if you were to go back and look at Deuteronomy 6, 5, you would see that it says strength, not mind. And when the gospel writer Mark and the gospel writer Luke uh, recount this this, uh, scene, they use the word, they say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are some uh, Bible scholars, and it, it's a useful discipline, who try to take this command up and, and and parse these things out, these four things. What is your heart? What is your soul? What is your mind? What is your strength? There's, there's usefulness to doing that. But I, I, the phrases, they overlap with one another quite a bit. And I think Jesus here is referring to the the various aspects of who you are. And Jesus, by using them together, piling them on top of each other, Jesus is being comprehensive. All of you, love the Lord your God with all all of you. Everything that you are, everything you are, and everything you have should show signs of the centrality of God. Dale Bruner says that Jesus is the most God-centered person. It's, it's almost shockingly so in the Gospels when you, when you listen to Jesus talk. And just think, even in this chapter, what he has said about the centrality of God. God rules over the state. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. God rules over death. He's the master of resurrection. God rules over marriage. He has the right to define the parameters uh, uh, and meaning of marriage. God is central and, and this love is comprehensive for him it's to show up in every part of your life. Now um, Jesus helps us a little a little bit here with, with thinking about aspects and and here's a suggestion for you when you think about this command and how it might run through your life. Um, I, I made a list of Of the various aspects of my life. Your list might be a little bit different than mine, but here are some of the aspects of my uh, life that I thought of. There's my work, my marriage, my parenting, my hobbies. (laughs) I don't have hobbies because I have children. Uh, My social media, my entertainment, my finances, my diet and exercise. Categories of my life, broad categories. Think about the broad categories of your life and then um, grade yourself. On a scale of one to 10, how central a role does God play in each of these areas of your life? Is there enough evidence in your life? Is there something unexpected in those areas that has to be supernatural? It's not explicable by any other means except the fact that God is central To your life. When you do that, you might be discouraged. Um, The Reformers, today's Reformation Sunday, Martin Luther, the chief use that he put these commands to is to show his listeners, his readers, how far short of the glory of God they have fallen, how sinful they were. Do you love God? In every area of your life, is he central to your life? Luther said, great commands equal great obligations, and the greatest of commands reveal the greatest of our sins. Comprehensive love. Second, this passage, uh, Jesus is talking here about affectionate love. Affectionate love. This includes, this love here includes your feelings and your emotions, your passions. Jesus did not say, notice, um, submit to the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say, serve the Lord your God with your uh, 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 heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. He said, love. Now this is the challenge is getting harder here. He he's not only talking about a love that is wide, comprehensive, but one that is deep too. Sometimes this frustrates us because we read the Bible and we think, well how how in the world does the Bible presume to command us to feel certain ways? How does it do that? And and so because you can't command feelings, we, we sometimes minimize this command as if uh, love is doing what's best for someone else, whether you feel like it or not. Love is doing what's best for someone else. That's what we say love is. But that, that will not do. Because look how um, Jesus speaks about love in Matthew six twenty four. In Matthew 6:24, he's talking about uh, loving God and loving money and that you can't do that. Look what he says, Matthew 6:24. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. What's the opposite of love according to Jesus? Hate. And is hate a feeling word? Well, you bet it is. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise. Is despise a feeling word? Absolutely it is. Despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The opposite of love is hate, and hate is clearly an affectionate word, and love is clearly an affectionate word. And if this is true, that Jesus here is commanding our passions, our affections, maybe you can understand even more why Luther thought this was a good place to talk about our failings. Is your love for God affectionate, passionate, warm, enthusiastic? That's a miracle. It's a miracle for that to be true. It's something that requires supernatural intervention affectionate love. Third, it is responsive love, responsive love that he's talking about. Luther's favorite word in this command is the word your, not the your heart, your mind part, but the your God part. Love the Lord, your God. Jesus doesn't say, love the Lord, the God or love the Lord a God, he says, love the Lord your God, as if your love already assumes that you have a relationship with him. He created you, he sustains you, he loves you first. He's your God, and your love is a response to his love. We read a few minutes ago from 1 John chapter 4. Look at it again. The apostle John, I think, spent a lot of time thinking about these two commands. And uh, uh, with, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he explained, expanded on these commands in his epistle. We're going we're gonna to read from 1 John 4 a couple of times, but look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us first. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loved us first, and our love is a response to his love. Jesus is speaking about love that's, that's responsive here. And I know what some of you are thinking, and if you're not thinking, you should be thinking it, what sort of God would demand this sort of love Is is God being selfish here that the greatest commandment is that you love him? Is he being self-centered? Just think about this. If uh, you and I uh, started to develop a uh, friendship, we started to hang out a little bit, and and I, I sat you down and I said, you know, I like being your friend, but there's something that you need to understand about friendship with me. The most important thing about your friendship with me is that you love me with everything that you have. If you want to be my friend, if you want to have a good relationship with me, your life has to center around me. (laughs) You know what? You you should run from people like that, right? Right? I mean, that's strange. C.S. Lewis said, that uh, when he reads the Psalms and there's all the commands in Psalms to praise the Lord or sing his praises, C.S. Lewis says he sounds God in the Psalms. You might be tempted to think that God in the Psalms sounds like an old woman who's trying to get compliments for her new coat. Don't you like my coat? Don't you want to say something about my coat? Don't you like it? Praise my coat. Here, in this passage, you might be tempted to think of God as a jealous boyfriend or a jealous girlfriend. You know, someone who's, who says to you all the time, who was that on the phone? Who just texted you? Where were you today? What are you doing? Did you talk to that guy? We not, we're not going to hang out with your, with your family too much be, and your friends because I don't like them and you need to spend more time with me. All right, if you're in a relationship with a person like that, you need to run from that relationship. So how is it that when the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how is that not God being a jealous boyfriend? Or to put it more elegantly, I suppose, is God a narcissist? That, that he's so self-centered and so selfish that the world has to revolve around him. Your life has to revolve around him. God is not a narcissist. And let me tell you why. I'll give you two reasons. Number one, he's worthy of this sort of love. God is worthy of this sort of love. If he's that wonderful, he's, he's that worthy. Um, I am not, I am not worthy of you centering your life around. But God is. Let me me help you understand that maybe a little bit. Here's a picture of a bird from New Guinea. It is a Western parotia. It's a member of the birds of paradise. This is a male of the species. The female of the species is not that uh, colorful and vivid. And what's interesting about the Western parotia is the very unusual and expansive mating ritual, uh, what the, the male Western parotia does in order to attract a female. First of all, what he does is every morning he has a territory and he clears it of any debris. Very carefully, he goes and picks up any leaf that falls, any twig, any weed. He pulls out of the ground and clears his territory so that his platform, his stage is uh, pristine, And then hopefully, a female will, will notice this and will land to inspect it. And when he does, oh, when she does, oh boy, that's when the magic happens. He fluffs out his feathers like this, and he starts to dance. Clearly not a Baptist bird. He starts to dance. And he moves his feet from side to side with these puffy feathers. And if she is interested enough, she'll be looking down from the top. If she's interested enough, he'll flash her with that iridescent uh, uh, throat of his. And oh boy, the romance happens. It's astounding to watch. Some of you guys think that all you need to do is spray some more Axe body spray. That's not enough. (laughs) Not enough. This bird, it's amazing. And you know what? I can introduce you. I can tell you about the God who made that bird. He is the God who also made a blue whale and and Mount Everest and pine trees and golden retrievers. I can introduce you to this God who created everything that exists. It took him about a week. This is one of the ways that Paul would like you to think about him. He says in Romans 1, he talks about the shock of this. In Romans chapter 1, look what it says about God, the creator, who is worthy. He says, what may be known about God is plain to human beings because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, Uh, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. God's glory is evident in the things that He made and can you believe it? Human beings don't even pay attention to it. He's worthy of, of this glory and thanks and honor because his attributes are evident in, in what has been made, and uh, we, human beings, we human beings have failed to give it to him. John Piper says that when his uh, son was 13 years old, they started to look for a new school for him, and they visited a Christian school that was not very far away from them. And, and he sat down while he was, they were on a tour of the school, and he sat down with the administration, uh, administrator of the school, and he said, what is your ultimate goal in this school? And Piper says, I I thought that I was tipping my hand when I used the word ultimate, but the uh, principal looked at him and he said, our goal in this institution is to train minds of young people so that they will think critically and become fully human. Piper clearly didn't look pleased and the principal was taken aback by this a little bit. And he said, well... Uh, is, do you have a problem with, with our goal statement? And he, uh, Piper said, well, I would think that you would have a goal statement that would be different than an atheistic school might have. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Piper said, well, uh, I, I think that maybe a good goal for your ultimate goal of this Christian school would be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the principal said, well, we, we, we assume that. Piper said, I thought about it later. I didn't say it at the time, but I thought it at the time. I should have said it. God does not like to be assumed. God's not a narcissist because he is worthy of this sort of love. And the worth worth of God is evident not just in the fact that he created the world, but that he will one day recreate the world. It's interesting about this passage. You should wonder about this. Uh, This is not original to me. Someone pointed it out. Why did the teacher of the law ask Jesus about the greatest commandment instead of asking Jesus about the greatest promise in the Bible? Think about that different orientation towards the Scriptures between those two questions. Which is the greatest commandment as opposed to Which is the greatest promise that God made? One of them assumes that the Bible is about you and what you need to do uh, for God. And one of them is, more in line with what the scripture is, the story of what God has done for us. Which is the greatest promise? Well, I have a candidate for you. I think maybe the greatest promise in all the Bible is the first promise in the Bible. When God said that he was going to send a deliverer who would rescue us from our sin. (laughs) We're talking about this deliverer. He's the one who's speaking here in this passage. The God promised deliverer who came to fix what we have broken. Um, In a few days from this passage, he's going to die on the cross Because the world is broken because of our sin. That cross death is a great act of justice. God is committed to making the world that we have broken right. And Jesus dies in his expression of God's justice. It's an expression of God's mercy because Jesus died the death that we should have died. And gives life and forgiveness to all who turn and receive it from him. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans that someday God is going to recreate the world. He's going to fix the world and make it fit for us who believe in Jesus to live uh, on, in. God's done a great work in forgiving you and giving you life through Jesus. And someday he's going to make the world match you. It's going to be astounding that age to come. None of the pain and sorrow and grief, none of the things Ed talked about how life in this world is so hard, they'll be washed away in that recreating work that God does. He's worthy. He is worthy of this sort of love because of the great work he has done, calling the world into existence, redeeming it through his dear son. God's not a narcissist. When you see his worth, you recognize this. And then you also recognize that when Jesus says things like this, this actually, this command is life. This command is life to us. It's not shackles. Jesus isn't trying to tie you down. He's trying to give you freedom here. This is not darkness that he's introducing. It's light. It's not a disease. It's, it's medicine. It's food, not starvation. Sometimes this command might feel like a burden, but it's not. It's the, the map out of the maze. It's life. Now, Jesus does something here that no one, as far as we know, ever did. He pairs this first commandment with a second commandment, which he mentions in verse 39. Let's move on. So we've talked about love God. Now command number two, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Jesus says, verse uh, 39, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why did Jesus connect these commands? I have some ideas. Um, The two are connected, I think, in part because our love for God will be largely invisible, whereas our love for our neighbors will be how that love for God is made visible. So he's talking about invisible love and visible love. Um, Look at 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We read from 1 John 4 earlier. It says, we love because he first loved us. Good words. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The two are so closely connected. Actually, I think that maybe, maybe Jesus was quick to, to mention the second commandment because he knows what we would do if there was just one commandment and it was by itself like this. You know this would happen. Imagine it, Wednesday night, there's a prayer meeting going on in a church, and the church is gathered to pray, and lo and behold, someone looks out the window, and they see that the orphanage next door is on fire. There's smoke coming out of the orphanage, and somebody, if these two commands were not right next door to each other, somebody at the meeting is going to say, you know, we can't go help those orphans because we're here to pray, and we've got to love God. You know we would do that, right, without these two commands right next to each other like this? Jesus wants you to pray while you're climbing the ladder to go rescue the children and pray while you're wrapping the blanket around some poor kid who's been rescued from the orphanage. It's good that these two commands are right next to each other because we'd have all kinds of trouble. He knows, Jesus knows what we would do about this, with this. The order is important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. C.S. Lewis said these very famous words about this. In a letter that he wrote. He said. When I have learned to love God. Better than my earthly dearest. I shall love my earthly dearest. Better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest. At the expense of God. And instead of God. I shall be moving towards the state. In which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first. Second things are not suppressed. But increased. Now. A couple observations about this love. It is specific love. It's specific love. The text says, love your neighbor, this specific love. And the words specific love are going to appear on the screen right now. Specific love, your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Not humanity in general, but specific your neighbor people. There was a book that came out maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and it was a biography of Mohandas Gandhi, the, the great leader in India for Indian independence. And one of the reasons that this book was so controversial is that it described how Gandhi would talk about love for humanity, but up close and personal to the people he knew, his family members, his friends, his working associates, Gandhi was a, a miserable, mean person. He loved humanity. It was people that he couldn't stand. Uh, Be careful about being wildly compassionate towards people that are on the other side of the world if you can't take care of the people that are on the other side of the table. This is very specific. Real people in your life, people you see on a daily basis Um, your, the guy who lives across the street, literally your neighbor, your coworkers, your classmates, your teammates, your spouse, your children, the actual real people in your life. G.K. Chesterton helps us here. He said, Chesterton said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies probably because they are generally the same people. Mm. You notice how social media distorts this? Um, there's real people on social media, but, but the, the medium lowers the cost of caustic communication. It makes being brutal so much easier. Christian love, though, is personal. It's up close. It's face-to-face With real people, specific people. That person that you're thinking of right now that you really can't stand, that person. Don't look at them if they're in the room. Specific love, second, sacrificial love. This love is sacrificial, it's costly. Jesus quotes here from Leviticus 19. I want to read a couple verses around the context of Leviticus 19, where it says, love your neighbors yourself. Look at some of the verses here, it says, Uh, verse 14, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Just think how practical that is. Don't try to trip up the blind that are around you. That's not love, Okay. Do not perverse justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. In the court of law, don't treat the poor better because they're poor, don't treat the rich better because they're rich. Then verse 16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Think of how practical that is. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. It's loving to rebuke your neighbor frankly. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't take revenge. Don't bear grudges. Don't slander. This is hard. The standard in this passage, of course, is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. Now, um, when I was in high school, it was the uh, peak of the self-esteem movement. And, and one of the uh, great things about this passage was that Jesus is teaching that in order to love other people, that's what they said, in order to love other people, you have to love yourself first. And the reason you're such a mean cuss is that you don't love yourself. But if you would learn to love yourself, then you would be able to love others. So we got to talk about how you can love yourself. Hogwash. Jesus actually assumes that you already do love yourself. You do love yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I don't love myself. I, I hate so many things about me. We should talk about this in greater detail some other time, but your um, hatred for yourself is actually love for yourself turned inside out. Let me explain. You, You love yourself and you love how awesome you are and how awesome you can be. And it frustrates you that you don't measure up to how awesome that you think you should be because of how awesome you are. You're really awesome, but you don't meet that high standard, and that, that the failure to meet your own loving standard for yourself, that difference sometimes manifests itself in hatred for yourself. I hate that I'm not as awesome as I think I should be. I hate that I'm not as good as my own vision of myself is. You do love yourself. Now... Jesus, the emphasis here is not necessarily on your love for yourself, but but putting yourself in that person's shoes. Love your neighbor as you would want to be loved if you were in their position. Think about what they would want and and provide it for them. Love your neighbor as you would want to be loved. I listened this week to an interview with Sam Alberry, and he was talking about teaching the Bible to skeptical people. He said something I wish I was better at. He said, one of the things that's good when you're teaching the Bible to skeptical people is to think about the objections that they might have to the text in front of you and answer some of those objections. Don't belittle them, don't make fun of them, but what are some of the objections that you might have to this passage of scripture and answer those objections. That's good. He said, though, one of the other things he does in order to help pastors that he uh, uh, speaks to is he advises them to go and get pedicures, (laughs) He does not say that because he has concerns about pastoral foot hygiene. Um, He says that because he wants to send those men who are Bible teachers into completely foreign places, places that they might not feel comfortable that are unique and not familiar to them places where they don't know the customs and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to act and they don't know how to respond. Do you tip when you go get a pedicure? Yes, I've seen some of your feet. Yes, you should, okay? So um, all these strange, you go into these strange places. He said, that will help you understand what it's like for people who walk into your church for the first time and don't know any of the rules and don't know where to sit and where to stand and where to go and how to act and, and what to do. Put yourself in your neighbor's shoes. Put yourself in your neighbor's skin. Now, you should think about this. If I do this, who's going to take care of me? If I'm always loving you, who's going to take care of me? Here's another reason why these two commands are linked Without loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will not be able to love your neighbor as yourself well. Why? Because loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength uh, provides you with the resources that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. If you have shallow love for your neighbors, if you're concerned that you don't love your neighbor well, the, the, the solution, Jesus says, is to go deeper in your love for God. And it will manifest itself in love for your neighbors. Remember the Lord Jesus? Why did the Lord Jesus die? The Lord Jesus died on the cross because he loves us. That's true. Why did the Lord Jesus die? Because preeminently he loves his father. And he went in obedience to his father. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength like the Lord Jesus. And you will love your neighbor as yourself like the Lord Jesus. Here's wonderful counselor that God commands. Love the Lord, love the God who loves you. Cherish the person who meets you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we confess some of us, we have heard these verses or thought about them or read them dozens and dozens of times. And Lord, we confess that sometimes that that makes them... uh, slide off or away pretty easily. Our familiarity with them builds up a resistance. Lord, um, we come before you this morning and we ask confidently, because you are the God who loved us first, we ask that you would, by your spirit, work in us this miraculous sort of love that responds to you and that rightly puts you at the center of everything we are and everything we have. Lord, there are some of us who play on sports teams and we do so gladly and with great joy. I pray that we would love you with all of our strength on the soccer field and at the basketball court. Lord, some of us will go to work tomorrow and uh, we'll be diligently at it. And I, I pray that you would help us to love you with all of our mind and strength, that you would be central to the work that we do tomorrow. Some of us need help in our families to have love for you central there, but, but also to love our neighbor's love our family members in a costly way. We bear grudges, we take revenge, we, we show favoritism. Lord, we fail in many ways, so we come before you asking you for your mercy and asking you for, that you would do this miraculous work in us that we might love you and love our neighbors. Even as we think, Lord, about that day that you come will come, and recreate this world that we have broken. We, We will max out our love for you and one another on that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord, saying, amen.